You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating. But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend. I, you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. And this episode marks six and a wake up as I make my way to episode 100, which will be the finale of the whole series. Last time around, I was joined by Luke Giaconetti to talk about the 1978 film The Deer Hunter, and I'd like to thank him again for being on. For this episode, I'm going solo, and I'm sort of returning to regular coverage. These are nom-related comics, but they are not technically regular issues of the series because they are Punisher comics. And I'll get to why I'm covering these after I talk about the song that introduced the episode, which is Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire. This song was the number one hit for McGuire in September of 1965, which makes it one of the earlier protest songs to chart. In fact, it predates The Ballad of the Green Berets, which is one of the few patriotic songs about the Vietnam War to be a big hit during the 60s. The song was written by P.F. Sloan and was given to the Birds, who turned it down. Several other groups wound up recording it, including the Turtles, but McGuire's version was the one that charted the highest and is best remembered. The story behind the recording goes that McGuire did it in one take in the studio early on a Thursday morning, and when it started getting airplay, it was a rough take that had not been intended for release yet, but had been leaked to a DJ. But it went to the top of the charts and wound up being the source of controversy. According to the Wikipedia page about the song, the American media helped popularize it by using it as an example of everything that was wrong with youth of the time. The song also drew flack from conservatives. A group called The Spokesman released a partial parody and answer record entitled The Dawn of Corrections. A few months later, Barry Sadler released The Ballad of the Green Berets. Johnny C.'s spoken word recording Day for Decision was also a response to the song. In addition, the British musician Alan Klein wrote and performed a parody and attacked on folk singers such as Donovan and Bob Dylan entitled Age of Corruption on his album, Well, at least it's British. Due to its controversial lyrics, some American radio stations claiming it was an aid to the enemy in Vietnam and Radio Scotland banned the song. It was placed on a restricted list by the BBC and could not be played on any general entertainment programs. Now, the comics I'm covering in this episode have a bit of a history to them as well. I'm going to start by looking at a trade paperback of what were three unpublished comics that were supposed to be the latest Punisher Invades the Nom storyline. 
but as will be explained in Tim Tui's introduction to the trade, the series was cancelled before they could get to this particular storyline, and therefore Marvel decided to publish these issues as a trade. And after I look at this trade, I will be going over a five-part storyline by Chuck Dixon that takes place during Punisher Warzone number 26 through 30. All of these comics, by the way, were published after the NOM 84 was released, and that is the series' final issue. So I'm going over everything in publication order. I should be covering them after the NOM issue 84, but I didn't want to finish my podcast with The Punisher, so I decided to put these stories in here as a special. And since The Punisher stuff is so far removed from Ed Marks and the other characters we've been following on the book at this point, this isn't going to cause too much confusion continuity-wise for you guys. So with that out of the way, I'm going to give you the official credits on the Punisher and the Nam Final Invasion, which according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was released on February 15th, 1994, and had a price of $6.95. The cover is by Joe Kubert. It shows Frank Castle in fatigue standing with his hands on his hips in front of the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., it is a striking image, although I will admit that on the wall there is an outline of the Punisher skull emblem, and I wish that wasn't there. Kubert also does the chapter break art, which is rendered in black and white and is absolutely gorgeous. For chapter one, we have a group of soldiers getting out of a chopper while under fire. For chapter two, we have a soldier whom I'm going to assume is Frank sneaking into a PW camp. For chapter three, we have Frank carrying two fellow soldiers out of the jungle. Like I said, it's it's a Joe Kubert war comic. It's nothing short of just absolutely gorgeous, masterful stuff. Uh, unfortunately, Kubert does not do the art on this, um, but our credits are as follows. Don Lomax, writer. Alberto Saichan, artist. Steve Dutro, letterer. John Kalis, colorist. And we have listed under squad, Melissa Dannon, Cindy Emeritt, Jerry Kalinowski, and Johnny Green. Tim Tu is your assistant editor slash platoon leader. Don Daly is your editor slash top sergeant. And the commander-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. Now, before I get to the story itself, like I said, Tui has an introduction. I'm going to read it verbatim because it actually provides a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that fans of the book might have been curious about at the time. The Vietnam Experience Punisher Style. The Vietnam War was a tumultuous era in modern American history. It can be said that Vietnam was a war in which there were truly no winners, only losers. This was the first time that America's fighting machine had been stopped, stopped cold by the North Vietnamese forces who fought to protect and keep their homeland uniquely their own, much the same as we did during our Revolutionary War. What the North Vietnamese lost in their Pyrrhic victory, their Pyrrhic victory, was their young, an incredible amount of young North Vietnamese men and women met with an early death. In a country where an individual's longevity wasn't that long, this was a devastating blow to families throughout the North, the South, for its part saw its vastly varied and beautiful landscape laid waste. The Vietnam War showed us another example of the futility of war, a war to stop the rampaging hordes of communism. In 1994, the alleged backbone of communism the Soviet Union, no longer even exists. So into an era of war protests, civil rights demonstrations, Woodstock, presidential assassinations, school segregations, and the police actions, why bring the Punisher? Were these stories told to make us feel better? Did we feel that we could have won the war if we had had more soldiers like Frank Castle? 
or were there a couple of really good stories to tell? If you answered yes to all of the above, give yourself a medal. Whether or not we like to admit it, in today's world of blind political correctness, we like the Punisher. The thought of a crime-free society deeply appeals to us. The Punisher's methods may give you pause, but the end result is intriguing. What if the same theme which drives the regular Punisher books, get the job done and ask questions later, was applied to the Vietnam War? A war which at the time the first invasion was printed in the Nam in issues 52 and 53. Long before the Desert Storm operation, Vietnam was still an open wound of the American spirit. The Long Sticks took form and shape. The Long Sticks presented us with the story of Sergeant Frank Castle, Marine Sniper, and the battle against his North Vietnamese counterpart, Roger Salek, Mike Harris, Jimmy Palmiotti, brought us this first invasion. It was a tale filled with suspense and story twists. Who can forget the last page of the first issue? Frank hanging by his neck after an apparent suicide attempt? That story, based on the acclaimed Vietnam novel Sniper, brought Punisher readers along on a trip through Frank's past in a book that was not even his own, but something even bigger than he, the Nam. With the first invasion done and hopefully not forgotten, Chuck Dixon wanted to take his shot at writing The Punisher in Vietnam. He brought along young, up-and-coming penciler Kevin Kabasik, who had made his penciling debut one issue before in the second invasion. Story in hand, Kevin went to the front lines. Dixon, Kabasik, and Palmiati, yes, him again, introduced us to a raw, green recruit just out of boot camp. They left us with a rough, hewn-out-of-granite soldier. This storyline also gave us the first glimpse into Frank's brand of justice as he took care of corrupt officers. With issue number 70, not one of the nom, editor Don Daly headed editorial control over the book over to me. The book at that point already had a new writer in the guise of Don Lomax, a Vietnam veteran and writer-artist of the Vietnam Journal. With his help and after lots of phone time, we plotted out the course of what would be the final chapter of The Punisher Invades the Nam. We came up with a story that involved the subject most painful to the American public and veterans of the war, POWs. Frank returns to the world that he's most comfortable in, the war zone, and is sent on a one-way mission to rescue a group of downed U.S. airmen. This story was to be the debut in the nom of another fine Alberta artist, Alberto Saichan. What You Hold in Your Hands was to have been the issues 84 through 86 of the nom, but due to the book's cancellation, it's been packaged as the bookshelf you now proudly have. Putting it out like this gave us the opportunity to give you just a little more than you would have gotten in a regular comic. The seemingly endless forward, Joe Kubert's chapter introduction, art, and the wonderful covers of the past Punisher invades the Nam. Those covers were powerfully rendered by Jorge Zafino. In going over the past stories, a question popped up quite surprisingly. Just what is Frank's last name? Well, with revisionist history being all the rage in comics these days, I'll make it real simple. The events in issues number 67 through 69 of the NAM occur before the events in issues 52 and 53. To further simplify things, the events in issues 52 and 53 should occur between the events on pages 11 and 12 of this book. Easy, huh? In closing, I'd like to thank everyone who worked on the NOM. Thanks to Don Lomax for taking my attempts at a story and giving me back a masterpiece to Alberta Sechan for drawing it. And finally, kudos to my editor, Don Daly, for having the faith and confidence in me to get give me the job of getting this project done from start to finish. Tim Tui, de facto editor. So we open at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Frank Castle is visiting and talks to a fellow vet in a wheelchair while thinking... 
the wall. It's hard for me to be here. The burning of bile in the back of my throat, that old gut-churning rage is back eating at my insides. Cold black marble, bone-chilling cold. All the names, all the lives cut short. It is a brotherhood, like an inside joke. You don't get it unless you've been there. A sick, unfunny joke. We then flash back to Da Nang at the end of his third tour and Frank Castiglione finds out he cannot re-up because someone higher than the sergeant major he's talking to is preventing him from doing so. He's sent back into the world and goes home to Brooklyn, where you next see him getting into a bar fight with a guy who sees a news report on Vietnam and trash talks the troops. Frank decides that he needs to be back in the military and uses legal means to obtain a new identity, that of Frank Castle. And then he enlists in the army. He goes through basic training, being careful not to be too good at what he does. And once he's awarded a Green Beret, he requests assignment to Vietnam. He is in the jungle with a group of Montagnards, one of whom is named Junior, and they watch a bomber get shot down by an NVA surface-to-air missile. The survivors of that bomber are taken prisoner, and while Frank Jr. and his squad make note of it, they have to continue on their mission, which is tracking a drug-running operation that is being led by an American officer. They ambush the drug runners, and Frank realizes that the American officer in question is the full-bird no-name colonel that we saw in the second Punisher in the Nam storyline. The colonel gets away, much to Frank's frustration, and when Junior tells him about the bomber crew that had been shot down, Frank comments that he knows they have been taken to a POW camp that's nicknamed the Death Hole. Junior tells Frank that he's the only person he knows who has ever escaped the Death Hole, which was nearly impossible and almost cost him his life, because the Death Hole is a place where prisoners are constantly tortured and even unexperimented by a man they call Dr. Death. Frank heads into the camp with Junior as his backup, and meanwhile that no-name colonel makes his way back through the jungle to civilization, and I note it because it'll be important later. They manage to get the bomber crew out, but Frank himself is captured by and Dr. Death says he wants him alive because he wants to see what he can endure. The rescued POWs make their way back to Da Nang, where they are sequestered and questioned by the no-name colonel, whose obvious motivation is covering up his drug running. They don't have much of anything to say to him, and he literally jumps out the window when another colonel approaches the two MPs guarding the room and demands to be let in. Without anyone telling him, this colonel is aware of what the no-name is so worried about. He says that they are going to go and get Frank, and our bomber crew asks to go along for the ride. Meanwhile, Frank is repeatedly tortured and finally brought to the lab of Dr. Death, who is trying to create a super soldier who can literally be controlled by someone else, a puppet, if you will. Dr. Death never gets to experiment as Junior arrives with backup, and he and Frank take out everyone in the camp, Dr. Death, NVA soldiers, and Cuban soldiers who had been helping them. Junior is wounded in battle, and Frank carries him on his back for as long as he can, trying to keep him alive. It looks like he won't make it until the cavalry arrives in the form of choppers and the guys he'd previously rescued. The colonel says that Frank will receive the Congressional Medal of Honor for this, but he won't get it in any official ceremony because this mission never happened. Frank says he really doesn't care. The colonel then slips him a piece of paper that has the name of our no-name colonel on it. Sometime later, we see the head of that colonel through Frank's scope. We then come back to the present and to the wall. Frank continues to talk to his fellow vets, gives him his medal, and gives the one in the wheelchair the Medal of Honor. And while the narration box is that of a news report relating the death of Frank's family, the guy, wide-eyed, says, I'm in a wheelchair, but at least my injuries are only physical. 
His, my friend, on the other hand, go much deeper, I'm afraid. So every time I read these Punisher stories, I have to remind myself that I have to take a different approach to them than I would a regular issue of the NOM. The Punisher, even before his time as a presence in the Marvel Universe, um, is a superhero. I realize that he doesn't have any powers, but this iteration of Frank Castle, which is the late 80s, early 90s version where he was at the height of his popularity, is clearly larger than life. So what Don Lomax is doing here is picking up where the previous writers left off and adding to this legend of sorts that began as these almost like tall tales that Ice was telling people in other stories. Now instead of that, we get all of this from Frank's perspective, but it's still very larger than life. He has more or less set himself completely apart from the typical grunt, and his mission is one of those special missions that only someone of his caliber would be asked to undertake. There's a bit of Rambo to all of this, but then again, I've come ex- to expect that from a Punisher and the Nam story, and what I think makes this good is that Lomax leans completely into the larger-than-life Punisher stuff. It's well-paced, too, with Lomax taking us out of the action to account for the subplot with the no-name full-bird colonel that we saw in the previous storylines, as well as set up the rescue at the very end. And I have to wonder if the framing device of the Vietnam Memorial was originally going to be part of the story, or if that was added after the NOM was cancelled, because I can imagine that if the series is going to go well beyond what its original run in The Punisher was going to be continue to be popular, well they would have gone to that well again, probably. But because it's the final invasion, I do like this framing device, especially because it's very consistent with the way I've seen the Punisher portrayed in the issues of its ongoing series that I have read. In fact, there's a similar scene in the first couple of issues of the 87 ongoing series where he's standing in front of the wall facing old ghosts. In that case, he'd gone after someone who had faked his death in Vietnam. His name was actually on the wall, but the guy was in South America running drugs. Therefore, it had already been established that Vietnam had a monumental impact on Frank's life. Not that it wouldn't, but I feel that that what this and the other stories have done is kind of the it's kind of the who is Donna Troy of Punisher stories. It's not how Frank became the Punisher, or it's not the catalyst for Frank becoming the Punisher. It's who Frank Castle actually is and just what motivates him through his everyday life, or where the seeds were planted prior to the actual incident that helped create the Punisher. Getting further into the story and what you're seeing on the page... You've got exactly what you can expect from a B-level action movie at this time. I'm not saying it's a bad or anything, but this is very much like in line with like a Golden Globus flick that was heavy on a lot of action and didn't give much depth to any character except for maybe the main one. The enemy are pretty much caricatures, stock characters that actually come off as a bit offensive if Frank himself wasn't as cartoonish as he is. In other words... Everything lines up tone-wise. It's not like Frank's a fully developed three-dimensional character with depth and, and things. I mean, he's still the Punisher. He's still this cartoon. So having the enemy being portrayed in a cartoonish way, it's it's a one-for-one match, as which is better than, than other movies and, and TV shows of this type have been. Dr. Death is a Joseph Mengele type of character. He basically tries to Captain America Frank in a twisted sort of way. 
Um, they needed to give him an enemy boss, basically. Somebody on the same level of Frank. Somebody who could be a match. You know, Frank can basically Schwarzenegger down like every grunt in the North Vietnamese army. He needs to be able to meet his match, and that's what we've got here. There's several times where Frank almost breaks free of his captors, and even Dr. Death is like, I told you that you have to be more brutal because he's tougher than you think. So there you go. And the art helps, by the way. Alberto Saichan, who... I think also draws the final issue of the series has a very exaggerated cartoonish style that only really works because this is an over-the-top Punisher story. I will say though that some of his drawings of the enemy soldiers come off as very close to the caricaturish and racist nature of World War II era depictions of the Japanese, especially since John Calise gives them a yellowish brown tint to their skin color. Granted, if this were being colored today, we probably would see a more realistic skin tone on these characters, and I honestly think that that's what Khalees was going for. So I don't think that there was any deliberate attempt at being offensive or racist. And the same can be said for Tsai Chen's art, when everyone is deliberately cartoonish, offense is probably not intended. I will say that I actually liked this more than I did when I originally read it, and that's probably because I approached it for what it was and didn't expect what Doug Murray or Chuck Dixon or Don Lomax have been doing in the normal issues. I've read it both as a standalone issue and in the matter that Tui mentions in his introduction and both work. In fact, it's kind of fun to flip back and forth between the different comic books in this trade paperback. This trade, by the way, is a pain to get uh, in at least its original edition. I happened to come across it on the very cheap on eBay a few years ago, which was a diamond in the rough type of scenario because at the time I couldn't find it for under $20. For, you know, In fact, it was one of those early 90s trades that was going for upwards of $50 or $60. There's a few that go like that. Um, I think the market is still there for a few of them, even though it's become easier to get these books in digital form and in other editions of trades. So you don't necessarily have to track them down. And it's actually been collected in a larger trade, and I'll talk a little bit more about that after I review the second storyline in this episode, which is Punisher Warzone, number 26 through 30. But I'm going to take a break first, so stick around, and I'll be back with the rest of the Punisher stuff. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality.
So the publication dates on these five issues of Punisher Warzone are as follows. Number 26, which is titled Pirates, came out on February 8th of 94. Number 27, titled Boss Sugar, on March 8th. Number 28, titled Sweet Revenge, on April 12th. Number 29, called The Swine, on May 10th. And number 30, titled Ring of Fire, on June 14th, 1994. They had cover dates of April through August. They all had a price of $1.95. All the covers were by Raphael Kayanan, Kayanan, who I've seen, uh, whose art I've seen in a couple of uh, issues of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, specifically the Crisis crossovers, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And, well, they are typical 90s Punisher covers. Two of them seem to be related to the storyline, but for the most part, they're Punisher action pinups. 26 is the Punisher fighting three guys, two of which look like they're red-haired, red-bearded twins because pirates. 27 is the Punisher holding up a guy that has a machete in his hand. 28 is a bruised Frank coming at us and leading with his shoulder like he's jumped off the top turnbuckle in a wrestling ring. 29 is Frank holding a guy on the top of a pile of bodies and the logo is stretched vertically as if someone got a little too crazy with the desktop publishing software. And finally, 30 has Frank hanging onto the side of some sort of vehicle while firing his gun. Because, of course, they're not bad, they're not good, they are what they are, to be completely honest. The creative credits for these five issues are pretty much the same thing. Your writer is Chuck Dixon. John Buscema was the artist on parts one through four. On part five, uh, he has assist from Tom Palmer, Art Nichols, and Klaus Jansen. Kevin Tinsley colored all five issues. The letters were by James Novak on parts one, two, four, and five. And Phil Felix did the lettering on part three. Your editor is Don Daly. And Tom DeFalco is your editor-in-chief. And I'm actually going to go ahead and cover the entire five-issue storyline. Because while it is five separate issues, it is a pretty straightforward plot. So I can knock it out in one summary. This involves Frank going after a gun-running operation out of a Caribbean nation called Puerto Dolce. He busts up some underlings in the Florida Keys and kills Cliff Calador, then disguises himself as Cliff, and he heads to Puerto Dolce. Upon arrival, the airport is attacked by guerrilla revolutionaries who are making more and more headway in their efforts to overthrow the current regime. Frank then meets the head of a gun-running operation, a well-established millionaire named Ernesto Villamos. Unfortunately, Calador's girlfriend and Villamos' sister, Carmelita, knows that Frank is, well, Frank, because she was there when Frank killed Calador. Frank tries to fight his way out of the situation, but eventually he's captured and forced to work on a sugar plantation. Having not heard from his boss, Micro, or Microchip, who is basically the Punisher's equipment and tactical guy, calls Frank's old Vietnam buddy Ice, and that's our connection to the Nam. Ice says he'll help Micro fry and Frank for a price, of course. Frank's been basically in a Cool Hand Luke situation where he's forced to fight other plantation workers and spends time in a solitary cage. But while Ice and Micro are working their way toward him, the guerrillas are raiding the houses of the richer people on the island, including that of Villamos. And in the first half of part three, Ice and Micro break Frank out. They fight their way off the sugar plantation, but then run smack into the guerrillas and fight them before they have to contend the pack of hungry crocodiles. The entire time this is going on, Frank is unaware that the guerrillas have caused Villamos and Carmelita to try and flee the country. And with his private plane being put out of commission, 
These two are now forced to more or less bribe their way out of the country and commission transport from a guy who says he has a plane. In the end, they are double-crossed, and Villamos and Carmelita wind up killing one another in like a suicide pack. You know, like kind of let's die before they just take us and put us on trial and drag our names through the mud or whatever. Die before disgrace or something. Death before dishonor. But Frank does not know this. He just fights his way out of the country and he laments that he didn't get his target. I know I mentioned action movies earlier in this episode, and I've certainly mentioned it before when I've talked about the more modern set Punisher issues, but I'll use another comparison in this review, which is that of the 90s syndicated television series. This has the feel of Renegade or some other show where you've got a hero or a group of heroes who basically work outside the law to take down some very bad people. Granted, that's also the premise of the A-Team, and Frank Castle is pretty much a one-man A-Team. But I can see this as a multi-part story arc that has its fair share of synth on the soundtrack and is filmed in, like, I don't know, Vancouver, even though it's supposed to take place on a tropical island. So maybe, I don't know, a state park in Florida. Anyway, that's not meant to be negative or denigrating to the story because the story is some good popcorn fun. I've always been a big fan of Chuck Dixon and the way he writes action. John Buscema's art is really solid throughout the five issues. Now, what's interesting to me is how this actually tied into my coverage of the NOM. I had learned of these issues in a solicitation for Marvel's publishing a complete trade of all the Punisher and the NOM-related stuff. And where the individual NOM issues and what was in the Final Invasion trade were mentioned, the solicitation also included the two Punisher Wars Journal issues that I already covered a few episodes ago, as well as these five Warzone books. Thankfully, they were pretty easy to track down on the cheap, so I didn't have to go to the added expense of buying that trade. I'm actually glad I didn't because I have to wonder if these were put in here as a way to pad out the collection in order to justify the expense. You know, that trade, I think, is 30 or $40 as opposed to the six ninety-five that was the Punisher Invades the Nom Final Invasion trade, which just fell off my bookshelf because I tried to put it on there and it didn't stay anyway i got through this first part of the storyline and i wondered what if anything this had to do with the nom because like ice isn't in there it's just it wasn't until in fact ice is barely in there ice is gets called in part two so i'm like okay there's the connection and i was wondering like you know even still like aside from the continuing characterization of ice as a vet who is now essentially a mercenary this could have been any friend of frank's all you need is a guy who's a really good friend and a trustworthy companion to go in and rescue his friend. I, I mean, I don't know who. I, I didn't read enough of The Punisher back then. But, you know, the fact that it's ice doesn't make it necessarily vital to the narrative of this particular title. That being said, it's still a story that was fun to read. This is 1994, an era where there was still some unrest in parts of the world that had been deeply affected by the Cold War, especially Latin America. It had only been five or ten years prior to that that the United States was involved in conflicts in Nicaragua and El Salvador. Fidel Castro was still in power in Cuba. Um, We invaded Panama to get Noriega out in, I think, 1989-1990. So here, to fictionalize, kind of take from that and fictionalize it, we have a small island nation of Puerto Dulce that is under constant upheaval due to the influence of the wealthy, illegal operations, and guerrilla revolutionaries. That fits pretty well with what the region had experienced throughout the previous decade, even if it started to stabilize quite a bit after the fall of the Soviet Union. 
Dixon sets up things just enough. Frank is after these gun runners, and we really don't need much more motivation than that because we know that he's basically waging a war on crime, therefore it all makes sense. And in part one, he makes one big mistake. He assumes that Carmelita is just some random woman, like a prostitute or something, that Kaladar had in the room, instead of actually an important player in the whole scenario. After all, the random chick in the hotel room bit is a classic action flick trope. To undermine that by actually having her be a person of importance and power is a nice little twist. I could have, however, done without his writing her as materialistic and the woman who likes to shop type because it's a running gag through the book. And for instance, as they're fleeing the gorillas in parts three through five, Dixon has her constantly complaining about not being able to get all of her possessions packed, which I think is there for some sort of comic relief, but it, it doesn't land. What does land, though, is the reliance on captivity and other prison tropes. We've got Frank taking on the bigger guys in hand-to-hand combat, Frank getting beaten down by the prison bosses, Frank making a friend who is probably shady and killing that friend when it's obvious that the guy is going to sell him out to the highest bidder anyway. The rescue from ice and micro features a swamp boat chase facing off against crocodiles and conflict with gorillas in one of those hey, what else could go wrong type of scenarios that fills out the five issues nicely. It's actually a pretty well-paced piece of slightly decompressed storytelling. Why I don't think it was necessarily vital to my mandate here, it was good for what it was. And that'll do it for the 90s Punisher stuff. I will return to Frank Castle one more time. In two episodes, I'm going to cover three different Garth Ennis written storylines. Born, Valley Forge, Valley Forge, and The Platoon. But next episode, I'm going to be back to covering the NOM, the regular series. I'm going to take a look at the NOM number 82, and I'm also going to look at historical context for the remainder of 1973. Until then, you can find me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. And if you're interested in sending some feedback my way for episode number 99, please get it to me by August 15th of 2019. Because while episode 99 will not be out by then, I'll be recording it way ahead of time as I close out the podcast by the end of this calendar year. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Nom, nom, you don't.